Hello, and welcome to the ParExcel podcast. I'm Peyton Howell, Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial and Strategy Officer at ParExcel. I'm delighted today to be joined by Megan Fitzgerald, an advisor to ParExcel's Board of Directors and author of the brand new book, Ascending Davos, A Career Journey from the Emergency Room to the Boardroom. Many of us in the life sciences industry know Megan because of her tremendous work in pharma and more recently in private equity and healthcare. She's also currently an adjunct associate professor of Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health. What you may not know is that she started her career as a nurse. She started her lifelong commitment to advancing health, and I'm honored to call Megan a colleague and a friend, although at one point in our careers, we were actually competitors, but we'll get that to get to that story a little bit later. Right now, I'd like to get going with the interview. It's an honor to have you join the podcast, Megan. Welcome. Peyton, you, me, and a podcast. What better thing to do at Paracel headquarters? I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So we're going to jump right in and discuss your amazing book. And honestly, Meg, it is fantastic. I found it incredibly inspiring, especially because um, at several points in the book, you were very vulnerable about the challenges you faced personally and professionally across different phases of your career. So I'd like to start with that, with kind of what inspired you uh, to write the book and who do you hope to reach? Good question. So I decided to write the book because I teach a class up at Columbia, as you mentioned, called The Business of Healthcare. And every year for five years, I had to make a syllabus. So after a while, I said, wouldn't it be great if I had a book that really was tailored to what I teach in the class? And what I try and bring the students is real life leadership examples of what it's like to work on the front lines of healthcare. So that was really the impetus for the book. Of course, the book took two years because healthcare GDP went from 18, it went to 17, it came back to 18. We had the ACA, we didn't have the ACA. As you know, right, healthcare changes all the time. So it made it really difficult to write a book. I think the second reason to write the book is I wanted to share a raw and real journey of what it's like to get into the corner office, which I know uh, you more than anyone understand how difficult that can be. Uh, and there's not many places I think you can get just really honest advice about what it takes. Yeah, you're spot on on that point. I can tell you I've already shared the book with some folks that I consider a sponsor for or a mentor for, depending upon uh, you know different people in my life. And I got to tell you, it's resonated really, really well. So um, I thank you for writing it. Uh, I want to focus on your career. We could really spend the entire podcast (laughs) talking about the different aspects of your career. And in the book, I think you do a nice job kind of chunking it out into different aspects. But I do want to start and acknowledge um, really where you started. Um, You started as a nurse. And that's not a typical progression to where you are today, really, in the private equity, big, high finance world of things. So um, can you talk about how you moved into the business role and how you made some of those early transitions? Yeah, I think I'm the only private equity nurse in the United States, although if there's more, I'd love I'd love to meet them. I love clinical care and taking care of patients, and I like science. I'd be a good employee for Paracel, actually, in that regard. But what I did is, as I took care of patients, I was always curious how I can scale doing that. You take care of one patient, you take care of a few patients. I began to be really curious and interested in population health. And one way to do that is to kind of grow your career and try and get new experiences to be able to do that. So one of my early jobs was to work uh, at a dialysis clinic, and there was an opportunity 
opportunity to take on more responsibility. The challenge was that opportunity was two hours south of where I was living on the Tohono O'odham Indian Reservation. And I remember they offered to pay me more money. And I thought, wow, this is this is the you know mini promotion I've been looking for, even though on paper it was a lateral move. Well, I commuted two hours each way to that job, and I soon realized why nobody wanted that job. It's because you used the money they gave you in the promotion for gas. But what it did is it gave me street cred. It was considered, you know, a battle job. And if you did it and you did it well, you were able to take on more responsibility. So after two years of doing that, I was kind of able to come back to the home office, if you will, the home area of Arizona and take on more responsibility. So I tell people all the time, sometimes the lateral is the way to go because it gets you further than if I just waited for the promotion back in, back in the home office. It's a fantastic example. Um, taking the lateral move is really not what we're taught um, overall. And I think being able to take the challenging assignment, sometimes the job no one else wants, that's really important advice. And I think for your students, I can already see why this now becomes a living example of some of the advice you're trying to share, which is just fantastic. As you look back now, um, what was the most difficult pivot in your career to date? Wow. I've made about eight pivots. And I think the most difficult pivot, and you and I have talked about this, was the pivot into private equity. I came from corporate America, as you did. I didn't grow up as a banker. I didn't grow up in finance. And so trying to get into private equity took a year, and it took a year of working for free. I left Cardinal Health, and I didn't have a job. And you often tell people, oh, don't leave a job until you have a job. So I really did a lot of things that you know, weren't normal paths for people. But as a result, this is how you get there. So in that year off, I called people up that were in private equity, just like I did when I was a nurse. I called doctors, nurses, and pharmacists, people that had already made a business pivot. And I said, how did you make a pivot? And when you're not asking someone for a job, they're oftentimes willing to sit down and talk to you. So I asked a whole bunch of friends and acquaintances I knew in private equity, could I spend time with you? Could I come to your LP meetings and your investor meetings and see what private equity is about? And after a year, I realized that the best fit for me would likely be a family office like L1, and there's a few others out there, where there is an interest in patient capital, there's an interest in strategy, and there's an interest in business building, all things that I did in corporate America. So the advice I have for people around a pivot is make sure the pivot is close to home, and it's a few degrees of freedom away from what you're doing today. So to think that I could leave corporate America and go into any private equity firm wouldn't be a realistic pivot. But finding a firm that treated the job very analogous to the corporate development and strategy jobs I had was going to be a good fit. It just took me a while to figure that out. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. It's a big pivot, I mean, without a doubt. In the book, you made a comment really related to this, um, that more employees need to take a CFO to lunch. Um, I'm really wondering what you meant by this and what your own learning has been. I think you need to take more finance early in your career. And all my students, when they ask me what electives to take, I tell them to take finance electives. If you were five years old and we were playing in a sandbox, I would say take more math. Looking back now, really the way to the corner office and in, and you know if that's your goal or to be a CEO, it's often done by managing a P&L. It's done by being a CFO, by running a business. You know all of this. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So I always tell people, take a CFO to lunch 
understand how a company makes money. Even if you're in a nonprofit, everyone has a hard goal. And if you understand how a company makes money, very quickly you understand what's important to driving revenue, driving earnings, and make yourself involved in those goals. If you're working on a project to expand into China and it's not driving revenue and it's not driving earnings for the next 10 years, you might want to evaluate if that's where you want to be spending the next 10 years of your time. So I believe more women executives need exposure to P&L jobs, but likely that starts with understanding how a company makes money and graduating yourself into it. You don't just wind up with a P&L job. You have to find ways to pivot into those jobs. So taking a CFO to lunch was twofold. One, I think it helps you understand what's important to the company, but also I think it starts to train you in a safe setting how a company makes money and it gives you that exposure instead of waiting till so many of us have said, well, I'll fake it till I make it and I'll stand up here and and try and figure this out. Yeah, and what you're really saying is kind of embracing that area is critical from a credibility perspective. And I've given the same advice maybe in a different way. People say they want to be leaders, but they say they don't like the finance part. Right. It's like the two are in conflict. You really have to embrace those weaknesses in order to to reach you know that goal, that aspirational goal from a leadership perspective. 100%. So it is, it's great advice for your students, but it's really great advice for men and women at any point in their career that are aspiring to move up. But for women in leadership, um, the gaps, as you know, are real. We've talked about this together quite a bit. Uh, There's gaps in the C-suite. There's gaps on boards. It's certainly finally getting more airtime. But we really need to push for more progress. Um, It's embarrassing, frankly. I'm not going to go through the statistics with you um, because I know you know them. And I know you and I are both committed to this. So from your perspective, how do we get more women into the corner office and executive roles? Right. So last year, I wrote an article and I titled it uh, The List. And the reason I did that was you and I now get a lot of calls for boards and jobs because we, quote, made it or have had PL jobs. But right now, if I were to call you, you would tell me you're busy. You have a pretty big job. And how many times do you pass and not say, well, listen, let me tell you about a pipeline of successful male and females that I know for the role. And I was running through the Logan airport and someone called me for a board job. And I said, no, I'm boarded out. I'm busy. And I hung up the phone. It took me about 10 minutes to realize how horrible that was. And I called the recruiter back and I said, listen, not me, but here's four names. And they were men and women. And it made me realize that everybody should have a pipeline at the ready that they're willing to promote and advance because if you're good enough to get the call, that means your recommendation is good enough to be taken seriously. And I think just getting more women on the slate, I'm not saying put someone in a job they don't deserve because you and I, Peyton, know that serves no one. Or, or worse, let's put a woman in a safe job so we don't have to have a press release about it if it doesn't work out. But really going out of your way to make sure that you have a fully complete slate of people and giving everyone the opportunity. Most women I know just say, why can't I just interview for it? At least give me a shot to interview for it versus being passed up. 
you know, you're being very humble, Meg. That article was in Fortune magazine, I believe. It's fantastic advice. Um, if you haven't seen the article, I challenge everyone listening in today uh, to take a look at it. And it's honestly challenged me when I get those calls to always have a list at the ready and make sure that it is a diverse list. And it, and honestly, you have to take time to step back and think about it, work your contacts, make sure you know people that are ready for those opportunities. And it, it really is fantastic advice. And you're really paying it forward in a, in a living way, which is just awesome. That's our job now right? It it is our job at this point. Absolutely. So in your journey, what role have men played and what role do men play in terms of uh, supporting and advancing women? Yeah, I I was really honest in my book. As I keep saying, it was just raw and real. It's just the way it went. Most of the jobs I got were sponsors that were white males. It was no reflection on me or you or women or diverse candidates. It was more the byproduct of when I ascended, just like you. And so they have been paramount to me, but I also pick really well. I've picked bosses who were intellectually generous, who saw maybe some of me in them, were willing to give me you know, feedback along the way, but also were willing to stick their neck out. I can't tell you how many people mistake private mentorship for public sponsorship. You are going to get into position to get the promotion, but it's not going to be your resume and your experience that got you there. It's going to be someone chose to tap you on the shoulder and publicly say, let's put Peyton in this job. And so I tell people, if you don't have a sponsor, Start to onboard those people now because it has to be genuine. You can't wait for you're up for a job and then go, who's going to sponsor me and, you know, run a campaign for this. It's got to be worked on as you ascend and as you go places, which means you have to pick well, right? You have to surround yourself with people uh, that are also going places and willing to, you know, kind of stick their neck out for you when it's time. Such important feedback. And you rolled through it really quickly. You made two points that you really don't hear people talk about, and that's getting real feedback. You know, including from your boss, but also from sponsors. And that's critical. And oftentimes women don't get that same direct feedback that sometimes men get. And then sticking your neck out, you know, actually working for um, people and, you know, having sponsors that really are willing to put themselves on the line. And then obviously you're now doing that for others, which is amazing. Those really are two things I think we often lose, um, you know, in the process. And I think as, you know, as women leaders, we really need to seek out those types of leaders who are going to be able to advance us that way. And if you don't have it, that's actually a signal to maybe look more broadly at others in your organization. And I also think you have to ask, you know, for the feedback, I want to be the vice president of this division. Would you put me up? You're asking for an endorsement, but if the person's not willing to endorse you, you're also getting the feedback. Why? Well, you didn't run a PL long enough, or you don't have exposure in this area, or we really need to see that you're more of a leader of leaders. So by also asking for the sponsorship, you are getting the feedback you need to, quote, get groomed. Uh, and men are really good at that. They're constantly grooming each other. In fact, it becomes just a normal way of life. But I think for females going out of your way and asking for the feedback uh, is sometimes hard because we don't always find people in the corner office that look and act like us and feel like somebody we feel comfortable with. But you have to almost put yourself in an uncomfortable zone to do that. Otherwise, you might sit there and be passed over and passed over and never realize it was something that you could have fixed or adjusted or was simply a perception issue. 
perfect example. That's fantastic. Really actionable, I think, for all of us. So thank you. I'm going to switch gears on you a little bit. Another chapter, another part of the book really relates to some research that you did related to the executive health of women. And in particular, I'd I'd like for you just to share maybe some of the findings that you had from that research and, and maybe talk about the implications of it. Yeah, so I conducted a primary research study actually with the help of AIDA because we did this study back at Cardinal where I interviewed 389 uh, executive females in the Fortune 500. And my hypothesis was this, as you ascend and make more money and get more power, do you do that at the cost of your health? There was so much great data on the paltry amount of women in the corner office and pay parity, but nobody was really talking about whether women get to a certain level and just go, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. I'm out. This place is making me sick. I'm fed up. And they weren't opting out, but they were opting up for their own halls of power. So I studied the executive women and what I found out was their general health was good, which shouldn't be a surprise because they have health insurance, they're educated. So most people had good general health. However, the paradox was the mental health and the psychosocial aspects of their life weren't good. 19% of the people in my study said their pet was their best friend. 48% of the females, all of them could not see a physician due to workload, which means are they getting mammograms? Are they doing other things? Um, 25% used, you know, sleeping aids. Uh, Half of them didn't exercise more than twice a week. uh, And there was a whole cohort that didn't exercise at all. So basically, there was no time to have a life for themselves. And as you think about now with the sandwich generation, the boomers are just turning 70. Many of my female executive friends just got done putting kids into college and are now taking care of senior adults. So they're now being new caregivers when they finally thought, well, maybe now I can finally get to the corner office. No, the brakes come on and they have to take care of uh, people in the home. So I, I think this is an epidemic worthy of discussion because I don't think corporate America is prepared to deal with you know employees that also could be patients and they're really valuable and they want to know you have caregiving policies. They want to know that you have clinics at work and that there's a chance for them to be flexible, not to work at home. That does, doesn't mean what flexibility is to people all the time. It means if my mom is sick, are you going to get my back to let me be out a few days this week and take care of my mom? My mom had a brain tumor when I was at Pfizer on my way up. It was the most inconvenient time. I told her to have a brain tumor. (laughs) Hello, you're getting in the middle of my promotions. But that's when it happens. And so you can't wait for disaster to strike to realize that you're working for a boss or a company that's not going to have your back. You really need to suss that out ahead of time and understand that you're working for a healthy company and a healthy boss. You deserve that, especially in healthcare. I thought it was a really impactful chapter because when we all assess opportunities and, you know, frankly, when someone comes to me, right, looking at their package, how often am I stepping back and, and saying, let's look at the whole package, right? What is everything that you need, including that flexibility, including, you know, treating someone like a whole person, frankly, um, part of it. And I really like the way you're shifting the dialogue um, yeah. about health. So it, it's fantastic. I'm it's trying. Your, it's I've, great work. Yeah. If I feel like if I leave any mark, maybe I make health 
a form of wealth or health new stock option grant. Maybe somebody listening says, okay, I'm willing to take that into consideration when I discuss my promotion or I talk to a friend or you mentor a friend or you talk to your spouse. You know, just make sure you just ask that one final small question. I mean, my gosh, it's amazing you'd think to do more research on your car insurance than you would on the personal benefits you get at your company. It's just, it's a little mind blowing. Right. And it's also a challenge, I think, for all of us as leaders, right, to make sure we're leading like that. And it could be the new way, you know, new currency, frankly, we can have for attracting, retaining the very best talent in our organization. So well said. I love it. Absolutely love it. I'm going to switch gears on you, Meg. Sure. You're really honest in the book about starting your career as someone who didn't quote, rock the pink. Oh, boy. And you came to the Healthcare Business Women's Association and some of the other women's leadership groups a bit late. Talk to me about how that journey evolved. How do you see it then versus how you see it now at obviously a very different stage of your career? Yeah. So I'm, I'm a little embarrassed by this that I didn't join the HBA. And when I was at Pfizer, it turns out that like three women who were mentors, sponsors, and really, you know, my Michael Jordans, if you will, I modeled my career after them, all were HBA Women of the Year. I didn't know it until uh, an advertising vendor said, you should come to this lunch. It's really cool. And I think you'd get a lot out of it. And I walked into that ballroom and I was just blown away at how many people were there. And they were superstars and they were going places. And then in the paraphernalia that you read, there was all of the people that I had been modeling my career after. So I realized um, shamefully that I had really ignored half of my potential and possibilities and felt an immense responsibility to do better uh, and to be more engaged. I was so consumed with this big strategy job I had at Pfizer and working 15 hours a day. And there's, you know, jokes in the book that were true. And we have people here to validate it today. I did sleep and nap under my desk. I was there all the time. People a few times asked why I had the same shirt on and it's because I never went home. I never really in those five years of getting a promotion every year, never stopped to kind of look outside myself and realize that I could have gotten leverage and probably knowing all of those women and networking with them might have taken a year off all of this other work I was doing on my career that would have expedited it or certainly had given me a lot of knowledge and gifts to do better. So I've made up for lost time. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm honest to say I felt bad about it, but I know in the last five years, I've definitely made up for lost time. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think I didn't appreciate it fully until you see, right, these mentors on the stage are are magnified for others that are just entering their career. And that's one of the big benefits of some of these organizations is that sharing just gets magnified um, and expanded, which is Plus who you model your career after, right? I mean, a lot of people look at you, Peyton, and they say, I want to be her. I want to be like her. And so you forget that you have, you know, the shadow of a leader and the responsibility to kind of be out there and let people know you can lead like this, you can be like this, and they have somebody to kind of model their career after. I don't want to say look up to because we're still very young. Exactly. We're very young. Thank you. Premature for that. Yes. Okay. So time for a fun story. How does that sound? Okay. I'm going to be totally vulnerable and share a little bit about how we met. Okay, good. So you and I, believe it or not, first officially met in a very dark New York City dank. bar, dark, dank bar restaurant. I'm yep. not sure which one you'd call it. Um, as you were recruiting and interviewing me for my current role at Parkcell. Um, and I think what many people di- don't know about us, they know you helped recruit me, that we actually used to compete directly. So Fier- during- fierce, fierce, fierce competitors. competitors. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, 
the You're, worst kind. Like, yep. I mean, like death met, you know, like wh- why the is this? one I wanted to beat. Right. All the time. Right. So you were leading the specialty business at Cardinal. I had a somewhat similar role at Amerisource Bergen at the time. Um, and I think it really says a lot about you that you would actually recruit me. And I've seen you go out of your way to push other women leaders out of their comfort zone and into new leadership opportunities. So I'm wondering if you would use that pivot to share some of your thoughts on on how we could all work together uh, to help advance women into positions of leadership. Yeah, well, I mean, Peyton beat me and my team maybe five years running. After a while, it got annoying. If she didn't have such a cool name, uh, she would not have gotten away with this. I'm like, who is this Peyton? And literally, I had never met you, but knew of you. It was like, you know, a boogeyman under my bed. Like, can she just go away? Shouldn't she be promoted by now? Like, why is she, (laughs) why is she still there? Uh, And to my team's credit, like we did make a dent and do well. But when I entered Cardinal, McKesson and Amerisource Bergen had like 90% you know, of the specialty market share, and we had zero. So we were really trying to go from zero to one, while, you know, these Goliaths had all this market share. So not only did you bother me, you, I had such a such respect for you, like, who is this? And how does she do what she does? And so it's weird when you really respect someone and you think all boats can go higher, you elevate your game. There was like never a sense of like jealousy, just mild aggravation that you did so well. And I just respected you. So when this role came up, somebody said, Meg, you'd be great at it. You'd be an amazing chief commercial officer. And I said, I know someone better. And they said, who? That can't be possible. And I said, Peyton Howell. And they said, wow, would you ask her? And I said, yeah. And as I told you, if you had told me that day in that dark, dank bar, I'd be asking you to do this job. We we became best friends after that. We literally, you know, I, I just thought, wow, where was this friendship my whole life? So what is the lesson in this is that you have to go far in the pipeline to find people, including finding a competitor. Like, if I can do that, then shame on the people that don't have an open slate to, to find people for jobs. And I remind people, you are the best person for this job male, female, alien, human, whatever. Like you were the one that needed this job. And I, I was right. I knew that. But it, it took a little bit of vulnerability to say, yeah, once again, <laughs> here goes Peyton. But this time around, we're on the same team. It was mutual. I don't know which, I, I don't think the winning streak was quite what you described, but I will say what I learned from you doing that is to, in, in fact, look for who is just doing a great job out there, whether you know them or not, right, to reach out and expand our networks. And that is not what we ordinarily do, no. right? We normally really kind of gravitate to our relationship. So I'm grateful for that challenge, but I'm really grateful to have you as an advisor to our board of directors here at Parkcel. The breadth of your healthcare experience strategically and um, you know, just the wealth of experience you bring from all the boards that you're on now really has been a huge asset and challenged us as we really continue to grow and invigorate everything we're doing from a drug development perspective, but also you've challenged us and you've been a key part of our strategy to make sure we also put the patient at the heart of everything we do. And so we are really grateful to have you as an advisor. And of course, grateful that you join us here today at the Parexcel podcast. And thank you for this amazing new book and sharing it with us. Big hug, Team Parexcel. Thank you, Meg. And with that, I want to give thanks for everyone who's listened today and joined our inspiring discussion. 
Remember, you can subscribe to the Park Cell Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and now on Spotify. Check back next time for more insights on our industry, drug development, and because we're all driven by the same goal, to make life better and improve the odds of survival for patients. Thank you.